What's going on, everyone? Welcome to another edition of Confessions of a Native Son. I'm your host, Mike Stedman, a Marine Corps veteran, entrepreneur, and aspiring author who enjoys thought-provoking and engaging dialogue about race, culture, and business. On this episode, I discuss a soldier's play by Charles Fuller, which is a Pulitzer Prize-winning play that explores the complicated feelings of anger and resentment that some African-Americans have towards one another and the ways in which many Blacks have absorbed racist attitudes. I discuss how the play is still relevant today and why it's important for us to have these discussions. As always, thanks for sharing your time with me, and I hope you enjoy the show. I'm a free black man, hold up my head, black man. Beautiful black man, now don't that feel nice, man? I love your brother, black man, and chase your dreams, black man. And get that cream, black man, we the original man. What's going on, everyone? Thanks for tuning in to another edition of Confessions of a Native Son. Man, I just want to say thank you, thank you, thank you. I recently got our uh, analytics back from the Gifted Sounds Network, and it looks like we're sitting at, you know, just at a, over uh, 1,100 subscribers. Um, when me and Mike Lloyd came up with the idea to release this show, um, you know, we were really just looking as a, a way to create something organic and something authentic that was giving me a platform to express myself while simultaneously building our businesses. And, you know, it's funny, I was talking to Mike about it, you know, I always share that the analytics with him. But like when I started this thing, I didn't really know what the following base would look like. Like I wasn't really interested in that, but it's something special to know that like I'm able to, you know, share my perspectives and opinions and those of my guests with, you know, over 1100 people now. I mean, that that's crazy. And I just appreciate you, you all out there, you know, spending your time with me to even just hear what I have to say and what my guests have to say, you know, in this crazy world, there's so much stuff fighting for our attention that it it really is special when you sit down and, and concentrate and, you know, spend some time um, hearing some unique perspectives of someone that you may or may not even know. And none of this would have been possible though, just the growth of this show and everything that we're doing without you out there subscribing and just being a part of this journey with us and uh, allowing us the opportunity to, to grow together. And so I just want to um, just let you know, I really appreciate that from the bottom of my heart. And I, I can, I think Mike does too, as well as, you know, the team from the gifted sounds network. So um, yeah, we, we appreciate you all. Uh, before we get into the, you know, the, the nuts of today's show, I want to go ahead and give you all a quick business update. So something interesting has happened over the last few weeks. I managed to triple my revenue in like three weeks. I got a big client that basically I make more with this one client than I do any of my others. And I now know that like without a reasonable doubt, I am a entrepreneur. Like I've legitimately built a successful small business that can, you know, pay my rent, pay my bills and allow me to live a lifestyle that I thoroughly enjoy dedicating time to, you know, my nonprofit side of house and teaching boxing and building a brand. And by no means am I saying I'm like rolling in the cash or anything like that. But I just know that like I've, I've, I've proven my business model out and now it's just about tightening it up and refining it. Um, this is a big accomplishment for me because I talk about this a lot on the show, but you know, when you're an entrepreneur, there's just so much uncertainty, like at any given time. 
And one, you know, for the past few months, I've just been watching my bank bank account just slowly uh, get lower and lower and lower on the business side of the house. Now, it, it was a choice, right? Because I stopped doing a lot of other side projects I was doing and doubled down, tripled down on getting this boxing brand off the ground. And it's just, it just feels powerful when it kind of pays off, you know? And it's funny, right? And and I'm going to give you all this advice. When you get a win, go out and celebrate like at that moment, enjoy the moment, enjoy the feeling of the win. And then like back to reality, like the next day. And so like, after I signed this new client, man, I was like super excited, end up going out to eat um, with my girlfriend and we celebrated. And then like shortly after, right? Like I probably celebrated like three or four hours. Then like the next day reality hit, man. It was like, I do not like so much of my income coming in from one, so much of my revenue coming from one client. So it's good to have the client, but now I'm like, okay, I got to get like two or three more of these clients like this because, you know, now I'm basing my business and the cash flow of my business off this client. But if anything happens, I'm exposed, right? And I don't like that feeling. So yeah, you know, got the client, feel good, but still feel slightly uncomfortable. But that's just the way it goes with business. You know, you always got to be staying two, three steps ahead and not just, um, you know, focused on, on one thing, right? You got to be strategic and think long-term. And one of the things that really helped me out with this, and this is a tip I'm going to give those of you out there that are interested in starting your own business or maybe have your own business. Go look up Jim Collins. Jim Collins is a business author. He's wrote a bunch of books, good to great, great by choice, um, built to last. And the nice thing about Jim Collins is he gives you like tools that you can actually apply from a strategic perspective to actually go about and build your business. So for example, for me, one of the things I took away from good to great was this concept of the hedgehog strategy. And the hedgehog strategy is, it's three parts. What are you the most passionate about? For me, it's boxing. I love building boxing programs, like from the ground up. I love the branding. I love, I just love everything about about boxing, right? Mainly amateur boxing. What am I the best in the world at? Well, we, to be honest, like I think I'm the best in the world at building grassroots boxing programs, whether they're in low-income communities like here in Newark or within companies and organizations like we're doing at the Topology and some other clients that we have, right? Like I don't think there's anybody better than me or my team at going into a location and just building out a brand and building out like a boxing program from literally nothing, right? Like when I started coaching boxing here in Newark, I didn't even have a gym. I was just training kids in my residence hall. And we were, I mean, those kids were good, right? But this is just how passionate I was about teaching and sharing that passion with the world. And so now I'm able to translate that into, into a business arena as well. And then the last piece of it is what drives your economic engine. And for me, it's high margin, repeatable clients or end user clients. So you know, like the reason I started doing the corporate boxing is because instead of just doing like personal training, you know, making $75 here from this client or whatever, you know, now I'm able to go into organizations, charge a premium and make a lot of money for one hour of work. And for, that's like what drives my economic engine in my business, because, you know, with with the high margin repeatable clients that we're doing classes on a weekly basis, I'm able to, you know, fund my lifestyle, have a little effort over to go towards the nonprofit side of the house but also just build brand awareness of the nonprofit, which is really the reason I'm doing all the work I'm doing. And so this all really comes together through the hedgehog strategy. And so when you're thinking about like starting your business, really start to hone in on that and think about your hedgehog strategy. 
What are you passionate about? What are you best in the world at? And what drives your economic engine? And the thing that about the, um, what are you the best in the world as important is because it's like literally what can nobody compete with you in? Right. So like for me, I do a lot of content marketing. I do a lot of digital marketing, but to be quite frank, like I'm not the best in the world at it. Right. There's somebody out there who's better than me. But in terms of like what I'm doing with Ironbound Boxing, tying in the for-profit and the nonprofit and building this social movement around boxing, literally I'm in my own lane. And that's why you're able to see me thrive and do stuff like this podcast and, you know, build a dope ass brand and just be organic and authentic because I'm literally in my own lane. And so just take that on out there and uh, use that strategy as you start to, to grow and uh, build out your businesses. You know, one thing I like to do on every show is I always like to try to give you all some kind of confession, you know, whether struggles, I'm stuff I'm struggling with, or it was my guest or just thoughts that are on my mind. And so uh, it's funny because it kind of somewhat relates to today's show, but I have a confession for you all. When I got out the military, right? Like I was a super, like, I'm like meathead, right? Like I was like lifting weights. I was like 225 pounds jacked, right? Like still taking protein shakes. I had a shaved head and I used to make fun of like, I would call them hipsters, you know, like the latte drinking, yoga, um, you know, yoga wearing, uh, Pilates, meditating hipsters living in New York city with the flannel shirts and whatever, uh, vegans, right? Like I thought it was just like, okay, this is just so topical. Right. And uh, what epitomized that lifestyle to me was like whole foods. And so like I get to Newark, right. And I'm from here for a couple of years. I find out a whole foods coming to Newark and I'm like, yo man, why is a whole foods coming to Newark? Like we can't afford a whole foods here. You know, this is just some more gentrification nonsense, blah, blah, blah. And so like, I was the biggest, uh, hater of whole foods here in Newark, but yo, I got to honest, my confession is like, I haven't shopped outside of Whole Foods Newark in like a year and a half. Like literally, like every time I go to like a ShopRite or Walmart to get my food now, like I get triggered because I'm just so used to Whole Foods. But it's funny because this is just growth. You know, I had all these perceptions about what it would be like to have like a Whole Foods right in the middle of downtown Newark. But to be quite frank, right, it surpassed all my expectations. A lot of the community loves it. You know, there's, it's, it's, it's a black Whole Foods. There's tons of black people in there workers, you know, you see the community really coming around it. And it just goes to show that, you know, no matter what people say about, you know, these, some of these communities, man, people still like and enjoy, you know, nice things. And so it's funny, you know, I joke about that now, especially with my boxers, cause they just, they love to make fun of me uh, for it. And then all the stuff I talked about, like the yoga, the meditation and, you know, vegan, like I'm a pescatarian now. So like, I haven't had like chicken, beef, pork, anything like that in like over a year and a half. I meditate like almost every morning. I do yoga when I can and I definitely wear rock my flannel shirt. So I'm like a walking stereotype. I'm not walking stereotype, but I like I'm a walking um, hypocrite, but it's growth, right? It's not hypocrisy. It's growth because I've, I've grown and I've evolved, right? So um, yeah, I just thought I would share with you all because I, I think it's funny and it's funny because people who knew me previously, they always like to, to bring it up. So before we get into the, the theme of today's show, which is a little bit deep, and I'm excited to go through it with you all because, again, the emphasis of this show is to prepare me to write a book titled Confessions of a Native Son, where I'm going to give 10, where I'm going to write 10 thought-provoking essays about a lot of the, some of the topics that we're talking about. But before we jump into the theme, I got to give a shout out to our sponsors. First off, 
Give a shout out to Dope Coffee, a lifestyle brand that pairs urban black culture with innovative product offerings in the coffee industry. We're not a coffee brand for black people. We're a coffee brand that seeks to elevate black culture through a lifestyle of premium coffee and candid conversation. Next, got to give a shout out to my brand, Ironbound Boxing, a fitness brand committed to sharing our love, passion, and appreciation for boxing within companies, organizations, and low-income communities. As a social enterprise, we proudly dedicate a significant percentage of our proceeds to fund free boxing programs for inner-city youth and young adults. Shout out to Dope Coffee and Ironbound. Check us out. Add them on Instagram, man. Really excited to bring this show to you. So now, got that out the way. Let's jump into the theme. And the theme of today's show is we're going to be talking about uh, Charles Fuller's A Soldier's Play, which is a, a play I had an opportunity to see on, um, I had an opportunity to see in New York City like a few months ago. Um, for those of you out there that have not seen the play, the, essentially it's a play about, which is a drama that uses a murder mystery to explore the complicated feelings of anger and resentment that some African-Americans have towards one another and the ways in which many black Americans have absorbed white racist attitudes. So the play really center around, centers around like four main characters. It's a, a Sergeant Waters in the army, uh, a, a army soldier named CJ Memphis, private first class Peterson, and then this uh, lawyer, black lawyer named Captain Richard Davenport. And the setting is like in the midst of World War II. It's like 1944. And, you know, they're at this this army base, this segregated army base, and a black sergeant is killed. And they send in this black lawyer to kind of find out what's going, uh, what's going on and how he ended up getting killed. Because the black soldiers seem to think that it was the Ku Klux Klan or some racist white soldiers that end up killing the black sergeant. And so the, the lawyer goes down there and gets to investigate and find out what really happened. And what it turns out had happened was that the black sergeant was killed by one of his own men, the uh, private Peterson, for essentially uh, blackballing another black soldier because he didn't like the way he was, he walked, talked and acted and felt like he was reflecting bad of uh, black people and the black race as a whole. And so it's a really, really good play. And when I, you know, when I went to see the play, right, and I'm watching this play out and you find out like that a black soldier killed the black sergeant and you're like, wait, what is the purpose of this? And then at the end of the play, it comes to find out that, um, you know, the whole, the unit, the segregated black unit, they end up going to off to fight in World War II and everyone dies, right? They end up fought. You, you later learn that they die in battle. And so like, I'm watching this and it's just like, okay, wait a minute. So here's a story of a black sergeant gets killed by one of his own men. It's just looks, it just looks bad in my opinion, right? Especially as a former Marine officer. And I hear this story and I'm like, I don't like it. Like, I, I feel like there's more to it. Like, what was the point? What was the lesson that was supposed to be learned? And so when I left the play that night, I ended up coming back home um, to Newark and I just was like fascinated. I started pulling stuff up on the computer and just start trying to figure out what it was that the play was trying to say. And what I come to find out was that a soldier's play was written to show how um, the effects of racism on black people from of like, what does, in a, in a sense of like, what does winning look like? So let me break this down. So in the play, right, this Sergeant Walters, he feels like, he calls them Geechees, right? The old Southern Negroes that like, you know, play the banjo and still talk like they're from the deep South. He hated them, right? Because he felt like, 
they were the reason why black soldiers like himself weren't getting the level of respect they deserved because white America was still associating black people with like slavery and the Geechee and the ignorant Negro. And so he made it his personal mission that every base he went to, every unit he went to, he wanted to purge those units of the black Geechees, like the black, um, the black Southerners and the black, the, the black tradition, right? Like anything that felt like was going to look bad upon the race and the, in the, in the play, the, um, the, the soldier, uh, Memphis, right. Who was just this banjo playing, you know, singing black soldier from the South, you know, he felt like he was a coon and what he ended up doing was he ended up framing him for a crime he didn't commit and putting this young man in, in prison. And I mean, the sergeant said some really, really hateful stuff where he expressed how much he hated black people like him. And this led to the uh, soldier killing himself, right? And that's why the other soldier, uh, Peterson, ended up killing the sergeant because he knew what he did. But Peterson had his own little sense of hate for guys like the sergeant because he looked at them as like Uncle Tom's. So just as, you know, the sergeant looked down at black, uh, black soldiers like Memphis, you know, Peterson looked down at soldiers like Waters because they rec- they represented Uncle Tom's like that they walked with their noses high and felt like they were better than everybody else. And he wanted to purge the world of those type of Negroes. So you've got this situation where you've got like black people essentially trying to fight for position and use violence to get rid of, <laughs> to cross each other out. And the thing is, as you look at it, you know, and that play is really deep. Now, I apologize if I butchered it, um, but it's just like, I can see that now, right? Like I, I see that now in like black culture, especially in like the black professional world, you know, so many, it's so many people try to distance themselves from the the black upbringing, right? Or like even, you know, we've got like urban communities all across this country that are were low income and impoverished. And it's like some black people want to be like, well, hey, don't associate me with the hood. Don't associate me with like the black people in Newark or the black people in Detroit. Like I went to a good school. I went to an Ivy League. I'm not them, you know, and then you got the people in the hood that are like these Uncle Tom thinks they're better than everybody else, blah, blah, blah. But you can see that playing out. You know, you can see that playing out even till this day. And so it was real interesting to see that um, on like the play and then see it in the films. And, you know, they, there's a film with Denzel Washington where he actually plays, you know, Peterson, the one that killed the sergeant. And I watched it too. And it just kind of helped me get a better understanding of, of what was going on. And so, you know, the interesting thing about a soldier's play is it's like, no one is right. You know, like they're both, they're both wrong because they're both using hate to erase each other and cross each other out. But it's interesting to see it um, using the military in that way, because I think the military, there is this like certain level of hierarchy, you know, with regards to like being an officer versus being enlisted, but, you know, just using it as a medium to convey those challenges that black people face. And so, it's, you know, you go see a play like that and it's like, yeah, it's entertaining, but it's really the, the point of it was to get discussions going amongst us amongst, you know, people, amongst black people in this country. And, um, you know, when I was getting out, I'll tell you, you know, when I was getting out the military, right. I, uh, I was looking at going to graduate school, but I'd always wanted to study American studies, but I had people tell me like, you need to go to a business school. And if it's not top 10 business school, like it's not shit, 
Like literally that's what they would say. It's like, if it's not top 10 business school, it's not shit. And so like, even though I've been blessed to go to like a great school it's, and, uh, you know, meet some great people, it's interesting to just be around black people that like still feel like they look, I don't know, like it's interesting how we can shit on like, I don't know, uh, other collegiate institutions, right. In an elite type manner that's kind of been done to us to keep us out of a lot of places. And so we end up adopting a lot of the habits that were um, a result of racism and keep perpetuating the stereotypes, right? Like at the point we are in this country right now, right? We still got young men and women of color, but mainly young men getting locked up and in prison, you know, um, growing up in single parent homes, right? I don't think we can knock really like any colleges, you know what I'm saying? Like I, in my opinion, right? Like I'm not walking around shitting on like community colleges or shitting on HBCUs because I went to the Naval Academy and, you know, I come from this, this background and I was officer in the military, but it's like this trickery you see that you start to see those of us who've ascended, who've ascended some level of success and respect from our, like our, our peers that aren't black, you know, it's like so many people try to hold on to that and then use it to weigh over you know, other, other black people. And for me, this is one of the reasons why I needed to, I had to move to Newark because I'd always push back against that. Right. But I, I wanted to change that narrative, you know, like I'm going to grad school. I get my master's from like Rutgers, Newark. It's a good school, right? Is it like a Columbia or nothing? No. But at the end of the day, like I still went there and I'm going to be a beast and I'm going to crush it. Um, and with this business and some of my other stuff. And so I just learned that like, yo, going in this, and I mean, going to a school like that, where I'm able to be around other people who look like me, like outweighs anything I ever felt, you know, being one of one in a room. But some people, you know, some people like that and they really like hold on to that and try to use it to weigh over other people. And I think that's wrong. But, you know, in their defense too, I will tell you when I first got to the military, it was funny, man. Like I got out, like I said, I was like, had my shaved head. I still had that like conservative type military mindset. And I moved to Newark, which is like essentially a black city because 90% of our population is black and Latino. And I was working at this private school, St. Benedict's Prep. And um, like the kids in there just had like so much crazy hair, right? Hairstyles I hadn't really been around in like years. Cause I was like in the Marines and then everybody had like a short haircut in the Marines and they were bald or had a close fade. And I just remember going to St. Benedict's and making fun of the kids hair and telling them they need to like cut their hair and they need to do this and do that and talk a certain way, act a certain way for people to um, respect them. But the more I got um, indoctrinated into Newark and the culture and living here, the more that kind of faded the way. And I was able to like realize how wrong I was because here they're like in their own, like, I don't want to say like tribe, but like there's, there's, they're a lot more free in terms of like their blackness and their culture and their race here than I ever was when I was in the Marine Corps, or when I was at the Naval Academy, where I was in these institutions where I was like one of one. So I was trying to like, I don't know, force this standard that I had been not like brainwashed, but was my world in an environment where that's not necessarily the case. And it's funny is because now I've come to love that so much about Newark, like to the point, like, I don't know if I ever want to like not live in a city like a Newark because I just feel so free, right? Like I feel like I can just finally for once, like be myself in my own skin, beard, uh, mohawk fade, you name it. And just like be professional, you know, and not like look different. 
But, you know, to a lot of my peers, right, they're kind of like on the outside looking in now because they're still in that in that corporate America world where it's like you got to walk a certain way. You got to talk a certain way to be to be validated. And it's really unfortunate. But the, the key we have to do is not lose sight of like what's the bigger plan, like what's the bigger picture, you know, um, and not try to like it's like cross each other out. Because essentially, you know, racism has like really fucked up the black community, not just the black community, but like communities in general, because everyone's vying for power. Right. Everyone is trying to get the edge on one another and nobody to be to be quite frank knows the right way. They're just kind of acting on it based off of their experiences. But I just think it gets dangerous when we start to look down on each other. You know what I mean? Like, and I could speak more from like coming from like the elite side of the house because I'm in a lot of those conversations, but it does bother me how we look down on black people in the hoods and the ghettos and we think we're better than them. Um, And just because we have like a degree or we work somewhere, you know, and I think because of my background, you know, my mom and in Texas and she's always my family's always kept me like very grounded. And I've never really like felt like that. And like even with Ironbound, you know, I was building up Ironbound. I'm definitely like empowering the community. So building it from the ground up instead of coming in and being like, this is what's right. We're going to do what I say versus like a collaborative effort. And even so, like living in the city. You know, being here on the ground in the trenches. Uh, now, granted, I live in a building with a Whole Foods and a wine store. That's bougie as hell. But at the end of the day, like, yo, a lot of people aren't living here in the city of Newark. And if they're doing work in the community, um, they're leaving at the end of the night. And so it's it's something to be said about my kids, you know, knowing me, seeing me around town. I'm starting to know a lot more people because I'm out and about almost every day. Um but to even just have these conversations, like I'm talking with you all here to be able to have those conversations with them. But isn't that a, like, isn't that an interesting concept of like the effects of racism to the extent of, you know, fighting for position and fighting for power amongst one another. And I know, you know, in the past, whenever, you know, black people have kind of had these conversations, it's always been like, yo, we need to do these conversations like out of the mainstream, out of the public eye. These are like family conversations, but I think it's interesting for, I think it'd be intriguing for you out there that might not be a black person just to understand, you know, what is going on internally amongst us and how it, how it affects us, you know, um, especially with like the HBCU thing. And I think that's a sensitive thing because, you know, sometimes, and I'll be, I'll be quite frank, right? Like the older I get, the more I'm like, yo, when I have kids one day, I'm probably going to send them to I might, I most than likely would like them to go to an HBCU. And the reason being is because I feel like I can fill in any other gaps that they're, um, that they would miss out on if they went to like some elite institution or whatever, because I don't want my kids to like lose their culture, right? Like it is important that we, we keep our culture and like our upbringing and where we came from, you know, another example of, I'll give you an example too, with um, regards to like the whole slavery thing. Like I'm very proud to be a descendant of African-American slaves. Like slavery was an unfortunate part of the American experience, but it's still part of like my culture, right? And I'll never like abandon that. And I know when I first moved to the Northeast, people were like, oh, where are you from? And I'm like, what do you mean? I'm from the South. Like, no, where are, you, where are your descendants from? I was like, well, you know, pretty sure descended from slavery um, versus people from like Haiti and all these international, con- all these other like international countries, 
And, you know, within that, like sometimes they look down upon, you know, the American Negro who's descended from slavery, you know, the natives, the native sons per se. And this is just another thing we deal with, like within black culture, but we can't be ashamed of that history. Again, that's like a part of our history and not wanting to distance ourselves. I think trying to distance ourselves from it is like the wrong mentality and assimilationists. They like try to do that, you know, over and over again and be like, Oh, slavery happened in the past. Let's forget about it. You know, move on to the next, whatever. But like for us, like that's a deep part of our history that affected long-term that affected us for generations, you know? Um, And like, we want to hear the stories we want to talk about. We want to be able to express how it makes us feel to know that our ancestors were, you know, enslaved here in this enslaved here, you know, in this country. And I, like, again, for me, it's, it's important. It's important part of my history and it's important part. It's important part of our culture. And I just want people to know like, yo, man, we can't be, you know, we can't be ashamed of our past. We can't be ashamed of other black people. Well, we can't be ashamed of other black people. You know, we got to like have this sense of like collective uh, community where we're like rooting for each other, you know, and that's one of the goals that like I would have for like this podcast and this platform, you know, and I, here's another example of like the evolution of like what um, Charles Fuller was bringing up in that play is like Tyler Perry, right? And I don't know for those of you out there that haven't seen Tyler Perry, but Tyler Perry has received a lot of criticism in the black community from you know, his, his plays and his movies and how the creative control, whatever, but also because if people feel like his plays and his movies are like, um, coonery, like just showing like the worst aspects of black culture, where it's almost like we're just comedic and no one's taking us serious. And so people look at those plays and those movies and, you know, give them a bad review and say, Tyler Perry's getting one of his credit to the race and blah, blah, blah. But like, yo, Tyler Perry knows his audience. You know what I mean? Like, I like high level intellectual, you know, content. I like audio books. I like podcasts, whatever. But there's people in this community here in Newark. They're not, they don't like that stuff. You know, they want to watch some like slapstick comedy where they feel like they're reflected, you know, comedy that reflects their community, you know, like their Medea growing up with their grandma living in the projects, right? Like they want to see stuff like that. And Tyler Perry has, has, delivered it in a way and made money doing it because his audience comes out to support him like over and over and over again. But people uh, get upset about it, right? Like they're like the, the stuff he's putting out there, it makes us look bad as a race. And I think that's the wrong mentality. Like, why are we apologizing? We have nothing to apologize about. Like if, if Tyler Perry puts out something, you know, that offends you, whatever, like you just don't have any agency with the content like his audience does. Like don't want to boycott Tyler Perry or talk bad about him because you think you're better than him because you went to get your college education and now you're cultured and now you could walk around and be, you know, um, seek outside validation from other people instead of the people within your own community. And I think that's a problem. And then you look at what he's been able to do. Not only has he been able to build, you know, this, this empire, this Tyler Perry empire. Now he launched like Tyler Perry studios, this like black owned media company where we're like, they said like black Panther was shot there. Some, some of bad boys threes was shot there. He named his sound stages off of like all these famous black directors and black actors, um, in, in history. Like that's super dope. You know what I mean? And it's like, people will knock his movies 
but celebrate that. And it's just like, it's, it's, it's interesting to me. Like it's, it's complicated, but again, that's what goes into being, you know, a black person in this country. It's like a race is like a complicated matter. Like this stuff is deep, you know, like even just talking to you all about this episode, like this episode is kind of hard for me because I'm thinking like, yo, how do I articulate the thoughts that uh, this play brought up in a way that's relevant and meaningful for people that may or may not have seen the play or heard of the play, but understand like the core of what the message is trying to um, is trying to convey, you know, um, because like even for me, when I was in the military, you know, there's this sense of when you're like a black officer, right? Like people you know, even till this day, when people find out like I was an officer in the Marine Corps and I went to the Naval Academy, it's like they give you like a double take, like, yo, I mean, that's like really, you know, like really impressive. But like, uh, uh, you know, being now where I'm at, like mentally, physically and spiritually now, like I'm very proud of my accomplishments, but I'm also proud of your accomplishments out there too, right? Like I love the people that go to the state schools or the community college and, you know, grinded and hustle because guess what? They're overcoming their own type of challenges. And I want them to get credit for what they're, I want them to get credit for what they're doing. I don't want to like walk around like, like an elitist asshole, which I see, which I see us doing as a culture, you know? Um, we, it's like, what do people say? It's like, people want to be black only when it benefits them. You know, it's like, you'll like, you ever seen the OJ documentary? Um, I'm not black. I'm OJ. But the minute, you know, he gets caught up in a crime, it's like race is like the biggest issue. And now he's having to lean on lean on his race to help him get through the shield and they come to get through the situation. And then they come out and support like people find a problem with that. Right. Because it's like, yo, you weren't down for black people until it benefited you. But when it came time to like, um, you know, own up to your your history and your and your race or put other people on, you didn't want to do it. And it's, uh, it's just very, it's just very, very unfortunate. And, you know, I think at the end of the day too, with, you know, looking back on that play, one of the things that leads to that, this leads to this, where we're like trying to cross each other out is I don't think we are spending enough time with each other. You know, it's like, it's, it's the trickery of like America and American capitalism is like, if I'm from a, a place like Newark, right. I grew up in the, if I grew up in the hood in Newark, right. Then I go to college. I go. I get good grades in high school. I manage to get a college a scholarship to go to to college somewhere. And then I leave Newark. I go into this elite institution, and I'm like never looking back, you know. And so then, like you're like, oh well, I came up from this place, but now I'm I moved on past it. I'm never going back there, and blah blah blah. And so now you're not even interacting with the community that like you grew up in with the community that represents a lot of the, the plight black Americans live in, in this country. And so you're making statements and assumptions on them without really like interacting with them anymore. You know, and then you have some people that um, black people are middle-class too. You know, you got black people that have middle-class or upper middle-class that have never really like um, been in environments like Newark or in the ghettos or in the hoods and like been down there to meet the people at the ground level, you know what I mean? Right. Like, and like get to know them, understand their challenges and spend times interacting with the community in an authentic and meaningful way. You know, and so what ends up happening is we just keep having these negative assumptions about one another because we've never spent time with one another. We've never had an opportunity to create empathy with one another, one another, you know, and that's, you see some people talking about radical ideas of like mixed income housing and oh, that'll never work. You know, like, why would I want to, you know, escape the hood and then end up having to go back and share an apartment 
with some low income Negroes. Well, like that's important because like there's no doctors, you know, let me rephrase that. If the kids and the communities don't see us, right, they, they, they won't take us as one of them, you know? And if you keep living, if we keep, um, if we keep not, how do I explain this? If we keep perpetuating the same practices and tendencies that other affluent groups have done, we're going to continue to hold ourselves back, you know, as a race. Um, and I just want to see more of us not doing that. You know, I just want to see more of us spending time with each other, getting to know each other and just stop the, 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 um, criticism of like, you know, our, our, our undergraduate institutions, the jobs people are doing. I just want just a world, just, a, just more love and support, you know, like I'll give you another example of what, you know, Charles Fuller was hitting at. I'm from the South and, you know, the NAACP was a big deal, like in the South, you know, because of the civil rights movement. I grew up in a Baptist um, household, uh, going to church on Sundays and, and whatnot. And I moved to Newark, yo, and everyone in Newark is like Muslim. And this is going to be a whole nother episode, right? But it's it was interesting to me first because I come up here and I'm like, yo, I haven't really been around black Muslims like that. Like maybe you had like one or two, but like not a freaking whole city. And what I've come to realize, right, like the more and more I was in the city, I was like, yo, I could see Malcolm X and I could see why the nation of Islam, nation of Islam thrived in an environment like this. This is because like a lot of times, like the NAACP and the middle class Negro, the middle class black people, we tried to write off, right? Like the, the junkies, the criminals, right? Because they make us look bad. You know, it's this idea of like respectability politics of like, if you walk a certain way and talk a certain way, then maybe we'll get respect from the masses. And that like, if we're going to jail and we're incarcerated and blah, 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 we got to distance ourselves from them. And so like, these are the kind of people that I feel like the NAACP kind of want to distance themselves from places like, uh, and I could be wrong, right? I need to like go do my research, but this is just my perception. But like, you know, Newark, the ghettos, the projects, right? Like, you know, the criminals, like they didn't want, um, you know, upper class, um, white people to associate them with that. And so they tried to distance themselves. And so the nation of Islam came in and like swooped up communities like the Newarks, the Detroits and the Chicago's where people were living in like violent neighborhoods and crime was real high and people were going to jail. They took them ex-cons out and they cleaned them up and they put them on the nation of Islam. And you can feel the grit, right? Like from that environment, as opposed to like, you know, what I experienced, I feel like as a in the South and just my understanding with like the NAACP. But I mean, that's something that's worth probably doing a little bit of a deeper dive into, but just off the cuff, like that's another example of, um, of what Fuller was kind of like, kind of like getting at, you know? And that just, man, it's crazy here in Newark, like so many of people in my circle, at least around like amateur boxing, because I don't, I don't have any family here in the city. The boxing is my family, right? Like my coach, you know, coach Keith, my, my brother, my partner, we opened the Ironbound Boxing Gym and his son, Keith, and all our boxers, right? So many of the, the males in the boxing community have been incarcerated at some point or one another. And this is the first time in my life as far as like, you know, me being a Naval Academy grad, you know, um, you're even like, you know, even when I was in the South, like growing up, like I didn't have necessarily have so many people in my close circle who were incarcerated to the level like I have here. 
But this is just because, you know, we're all around this experience of boxing, which is an urban, greedy sport um, that attracts just, quite frankly, a lot of ex-cons. Um, and now that's my world and that's where I interact with. But that would never happen if I didn't have something like, you know, um, the boxing to bring that about or if it wasn't a city like Newark to kind of put us all together. Um, but to be honest, it probably has, it has more to do with me and my willingness and my hunger to like get out there and be a part of the community and be authentic and transparent, um, and get to know, you know, those that I'm serving and, and helping grow the sport of boxing because, you know, I want it to thrive in communities like this, because I feel like if I can keep kids in the gym, I can keep them um, out the streets and it just comes with the territory. Like if you're doing inner city boxing, it's going to be around a rough and tough crowd. But again, you find out that they're normal people just like you and me. And so it's just, it's just cool to kind of, you know, be able to interact with everybody out here like that. So man, I guess my closing remarks are just like, I think for us as people, as black people, we got to think about like, what does winning, this is going to be a whole episode itself, but what does winning look like? Right? Like, I don't know. This is a hard episode for me. It's a really hard episode for me. Um, but we gotta, I don't know. We just gotta spend more time getting to know each other. We gotta spend more time around each other and we gotta spend more time challenging our assumptions because I just don't like to see us perpetuate the same BS standards and elitism that was shown on us on other people that look like us. Like, I don't, I don't like that at all. I want to support each other and building with each other. So um, man, this was a hard episode. I might have to revisit, to be quite frank, I might have to revisit this one. This is my, just so y'all know, this is like my second time trying to go through this episode with like the Charles Fuller's, for Charles Fuller's play, because this is like really complicated subject matter. And like, it's one thing to kind of like, I don't know, like you understand what it's saying, but like to articulate it, like getting it down on like a podcast or writing it for an essay or whatever, like this is going to be pretty hard. But I got I got to nail this, y'all, because, again, this is that high level intellectual thinking that kind of starts the conversations about this stuff. Uh, but we got to be bold and you got to go after it. And me talking about it is helping me articulate those thoughts. And I just appreciate you listening while I try to work through that. So, um, man, appreciate you out here for listening, tuning to me. Um, try to butcher my way through a soldier's play before I, I let you all go. I want to encourage you to go order some dope coffee. You can get yours at www.realdopecoffee.com. We've got to start supporting our own businesses. Right. And I, Mike Lloyd, by the way, is the co-producer of this show. I mean, he helps me out with the audio. He puts a little music and stuff in there. And that's like, it's just so dope that we're able to come together and build together and uh, what him and his team are doing, our team is doing with Real Dope Coffee, because I'm part of it too, is just we're really putting um, business and culture and just dopeness around the coffee industry and the e-commerce industry. And we want you to be a part of it, you know, and it's real simple. All you got to do is go buy some dope coffee, sip your dope coffee while you listen to this podcast and uh, digest it. And, you know, maybe you sip some while you write a comment to me on my Instagram or something. I don't know. But I just go out and get some dope coffee. It's dope. Follow them on Instagram. And then also check out ironboundboxing.org, www.ironboundboxing.org. That's my brand. If you've been listening for a while, by now you should know what we do. We're all about building free amateur boxing for building free amateur boxing programs for youth and young adults in low-income communities. I'm a grinder, man. I'm trying to I come up with 
multiple ways that our brand can leverage boxing to improve communities and generate revenue, you know, and that's why we do on-site boxing classes for companies as well, because it allows us to generate revenue to support our nonprofit efforts. But, oh, by the way, it gives us an opportunity to employ those we serve, which is like super dope. Um, and, you know, it's great. If you want to reach out to me or I would love to hear your feedback about, you know, Confessions of a Native Son and particularly like this episode, you can shoot me a message on LinkedIn. Um, just Mike Stedman on LinkedIn. I got the little cartoon emoji, the cartoon face. Um, or you can shoot me an email at Mike at weareironbound.com. I also want to give a shout out to... Uh, uh, Lance John and his team over at the Gifted Sounds Network. Check out Gifted Sounds Network, man. They're curating black podcaster talent. They're allowing me to be on the platform and be a part of the network. And it's just great being positioned around such talented uh, podcasters and people literally committed to changing the world and creating more opportunities for people of color. So there's just a lot of love going around. And I just, I just enjoy it. Like this show is just a labor of love for me and it's a pleasure to be able to do it for y'all. But you know, if you don't want to get coffee or you don't want to support Ironbound, that's fine. At the very least, I would appreciate if you subscribe and support this podcast by giving us five stars and leaving, uh, leaving us a review on iTunes. You can also forward the show to anyone in your network who you feel like identifies with the subject matter. I mean, this is complicated subject matter. And the great thing about this show and this podcast in general is that like, yo, this is a marathon for me, right? I'm going to get this right. So, you know, me trying to work through these thoughts and, you know, I'm going to have to go grab one of my professors from Rutgers and be like, yo, let's talk about Charles uh, Fuller's A Soldier Play because, you know, it's some complicated subject material and I want to get it right to kind of, you know, nail it for our audience out there so that they can, you know, kind of think about the takeaways that that play has and how it relates to uh, the black experience in everyday life today. So, but um, yeah, man, excited for another show for y'all. Just stay tuned and keep following us and keep supporting us. So until next time, peace, love, and have a great rest of your week. I'm a free black man, hold up my head, black man. Beautiful black man, I don't that feel nice, man. I love your brother, black man, and chase your dreams, black man. And get that cream, black man, we the original man.